ideas and the teachings of Sinectabas, as you all perhaps know, is a very um, beloved saint in the modern Orthodox world, um, especially um, in Greece, but also beyond Greece. Uh, Ehina is kind of a the center of an entire world of devotion to St. Nectarios because St. Nectarios was very active as a wonder worker, as a worker of miracles. Um, he is active on all, almost all continents, probably also in, in Antarctica as well. Uh, of course, because the saints work through God, God works through the saints, he does everywhere. Um, St. Nectarios is very beloved also in other parts of the Orthodox world, like Romania, like Russia, like Ukraine, and many of the other Balkan Orthodox countries. Um, St. Nectarios is also very beloved here in the United States and in Canada, North America, with many churches uh, dedicated to St. Nectarios. If you count the old calendar churches and the new calendar churches, there's probably not a major metropolitan city in North America without a church dedicated to St. Nectarios. Um, again, that's a testament to his uh, intercession, not just to his popularity. Uh, popularity is not the measure, right? The, the number, uh, I, I invoke the number of churches as demonstration of his, how beloved he is, but it's actually a, a demonstration of how active he is as an intercessor. Because you know, the saints are not dead. The saints, of course, their bodies are dead. They are asleep in their bodies. But in Christ, in God, they are active uh, and alive. And they intercede for us. Uh, and, they, and they reflect. St. Nectarios, of course, was a real person. Sometimes we think of the saints as uh, almost metaphysical beings who are separate from us, different from us. Who have, whose life is so separate from us that it has nothing to do with our everyday reality. Uh, in fact, the only reason that the church actually records the lives of the saints is to teach us how, how to actually believe some of Thanks. Uh, yeah, if you guys, if, when you're, if you have a question, you can turn on your mic and you can ask a question, but if there is not a question, turn it off. Uh, because ambient sounds get in. Um, but um, so the, the, the reason why the church records the lives of the saints and we, and we read and recommends their, their biographies is in order for us to see how uh, real they were and to use them as models. Right? Of course, the saints intercede for us, um, but they are also models and, and they mediate also the image of Christ. We see they are living and breathing uh, icons of Christ, uh, superior, in fact, to the painted panels that we have in our homes and churches, which, of course, are holy. Um, St. Nectarios lived in a very important period in the history of uh, the Orthodox Church and the history of the Orthodox Christian nations. You would think that the history of the Orthodox Church, its most important centuries were in the beginning with the Apostles or later on in the 300s and the 400s of the Holy Fathers in the age of St. Basil or the age of St. John Chrysostom or later in the age of St. Maximus 
and St. John of the Damascus. There is never a time when the Holy Spirit is not working in the church, uh, and there's never a time when there are not saints present in the church. And in fact, we are all called to be saints, and we're working, we're on that path. Uh, that's the point, that's the reason why we were born. That's the reason why God gave us life as a gift in order to give us more gifts. Um, but that particular period is um, this, the, the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is a, is a critical period in the history of the Orthodox Church. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good things that happen in that period. Um, there are many wrong turns that uh, Orthodox nations made. Uh, there are also many wrong turns later on, especially in the 20th century, that Orthodox leaders made, bishops and, and synods. Um, and those wrong turns, in fact, uh, have all gotten us where we are right now, in every aspect of where we are right now. Um, at the same time, given that, those wrong turns, we still have very bright beacons in those eras. Uh, that that tell us uh, exactly how, well, they give us the proper example of how to live our lives, as I said before, uh, but they are the counterexample to the people making the wrong turns. Uh, and it shows us that even though there were uh, Orthodox people, whether they were Greeks or Russians or Romanians or Arabs um, or whatever, even though on the aggregate, and especially in the elite levels of the society, people were becoming increasingly worldly, increasingly distant from Christ. Um, even though the institutions were, in the era that St. Nectarios lived, the ecclesiastical institutions, but also institutions of state, were increasingly being infiltrated by people whose mindsets were completely alien to that of the church, we still have luminaries. Holy Fathers, St. Nectarius, um, as a wonder worker, is equal to any of the fathers of the past, any of the fathers of the 4th century or the 5th century or the 6th century, which is quite remarkable, because we think that those, are, those fathers back then were the products of their eras, right? Since there were so many saints, of course there were so many saints. That's circular logic, though. Um, because sainthood is not something that is, is bestowed on someone by their era or by their culture or, or by even their own efforts. It's something that's bestowed on someone by God. Of course, they are following the traditions of their forefathers, the teachings uh, uh, of the saints, of the holy prophets, of the apostles, of the fathers. They're following those teachings, um, but God bestows uh, these gifts, and God bestows sainthood, deification, union with God cannot happen without God. Um, so Saint, getting back to St. Nectarius, St. Nectarius was born in 1846 in uh, Eastern Thrace. Today it's called Eastern Thrace. Back then there was just one Thrace. Um, maybe I could... And, Anyone that's taken my classes at the university knows that there's always a map on the board. Um, and you'll see what I usually do in class. Um, 
All right. Well, Maria, can you make me a host so I could share my screen? I originally did, but then I realized I couldn't record. So we're currently recording. If you want to send me the link and then I can share the screen. Well, I'm going to move it around. I think you could still record. I don't. We can try. Yeah, I could press the record button on this end too, if necessary. Hold on. Yeah. Or make me co-host. Okay, now I can admit people. Yeah, it's still recording. Okay, good. Just uh, eye on the waiting room. Yeah, I, I'm used to that. I use this platform every day. Um, so, uh, so here's a map of Europe. I, I, I just searched Thrace. Of course, it shows what is northern Thrace, Plovdiv, Filipopolis. Um, in, in Bulgaria, but um, Thrace, the historic region of Thrace, of course, is this entire region that comprises uh, northeastern Greece, northwestern Turkey today, and southeastern Bulgaria. Um, in Greek uh, history, modern Greek history, uh, this river called the Evros, the, uh, or uh, the Maritza, uh, Everything to the west of it is up to about here is Western Thrace that was incorporated into the modern Greek state right after World War I. Um, and then everything east of the Evros or the Maritza is Eastern Thrace all the way to the walls of Constantinople. Um, it, when St. Nectarios was born, this was all the Ottoman Empire. Everything on this map was the Ottoman Empire. Um, Later on, Eastern Thrace temporarily came under Bulgarian and then Greek rule, and then in Saint Nicarius is from Silivria, which is still a town in Turkey. Silivri, an ancient Greek colony uh, in the Sea of Marmara, right, not far from Constantinople. Uh, this is probably an hour or two drive from the uh, outskirts of. Uh, modern Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, and Saint Nectarius spent his youth in Constantinople. Uh, right, that's where he worked at the workshop of his relatives, and where he he gained his uh, education. In the nineteenth century, Constantinople, the most interesting city in the world. Um, with so many layers of history. Uh, it was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and it was previously the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, and for some of for the early Ottoman sultans, it was the capital of both the Roman and, and Ottoman empires because they uh, Mehmed II kind of imagined himself to be a Muslim Roman emperor. Um, it's filled with monuments. Of course, the most famous is Hagia Sophia, which is um, uh, of course, in the news recently, unfortunately, it's been reconverted into a mosque, as it was in the days when St. Nectarios was alive. St. Nectarios was never allowed to set foot in Hagia Sophia. Um, and even though he lived many years in Constantinople, neither were any of the patriarchs, neither were the thousands of Greek Orthodox Christians that lived in, uh, or as they were known back then, Roman Christians, um, who lived in Constantinople and in the towns and villages beyond Constantinople because it was the 
impact is connected to the, um, let's see, we can turn the satellite view on. You can see it better. Connected to, it used to be connected to the Byzantine palace, which was um, just here uh, to the southeast and to the east. And later was connected to um, the Topkapi Sarai, which is the Ottoman Imperial Palace, uh, which is on the location of the ancient Greek citadel. So, um, and there's a famous entrance right here. This little, this, this little here is called the, the port. Well, actually the port is the uh, inside. It's the gate into the inner chamber where the Sultan actually held audience and it's very famous. Uh, but this is the outer port um, leading into the top Kapisarai right from Hagia Sophia. Anyway, I mention all this to point out that San Ictarios was not allowed in there. No one was allowed, no Christian was allowed inside the Imperial Mosque. Uh, if they did enter, uh, they would have to convert to Islam, essentially. Um, I've been in there in the, in the period that it was a museum, Christians were allowed in. Uh, and could see the, the, the structure from the inside. Um, but Constantinople was very, the Greek, the Orthodox community of Constantinople, the majority of Orthodox, the vast majority of Orthodox Christians in Constantinople were either Greek speaking um, or Turkish speaking, that is Orthodox Christians who had lost um, knowledge of the Greek language because in their everyday life they use Turkish, um, working in and around Turks. Or other Orthodox Christians from other parts of the Balkans, like Bulgaria, uh, Vlachs from the Balkans, from Romania, from Albania, also from the Middle East, came to Constantinople and learned Greek and were culturally Greek. Um, and um, it's, it's, it was a, not only a bustling city, but it was a center of spiritual and intellectual life, right? So the Patriarchate of Constantinople, is uh, located up here in the north of the old city. Um, so in Turkish, it's called Aya Yorgi Rum. If I can interrupt, um, I think there's some people waiting in the waiting room. Okay. Um, let's see. Yep, here we go. All right. I have to keep that screen. It was, I have to be minimized. All right, I point... To all this, uh, I talk about all this because it's part of uh, Saint Nectarios's milieu, right? This is where he grew up. These are all the institutions that were there, the Patriarchate, uh, but also the many parish churches, uh, the amazing chanters that were actually whose writings we have, whose compositions we have, and most of the uh, we mostly sing in churches in our, or in the Greek churches at least. Um, of composers of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is all uh, in the mix, right? Uh, also many authors, uh, there's an entire class of Orthodox Christians called the Phanariots, who are from the Fanar, which is this neighborhood up here, um, who rose to very high places in the Ottoman Empire uh, for a while in the 1800s, 1700s, sorry, they were actually serving as in Romania uh, later in the 1800s, they served as ambassadors for the Ottoman Empire. In fact, the, the, the Ottoman ambassadors to London and to Athens were actually Greeks. Um, and uh, they were Phanariots from the Phanar. Uh, so St. Nectarios eventually uh, moves to Chios, 
also part of the Ottoman Empire back then, uh, where he went to Neamoni. Chios is very famous because of Neamoni and because of the Masticha, the mastic uh, for, uh, groves that are in the south. Um, and at Neamoni, he uh, becomes a monk. Um, and actually, he became a monk at a metochion of Neamoni, which is the metochion of the Holy Fathers, Yagi Pateres. And there, the elder was Saint Pachomios. So his elder was a saint. Uh, and it's not surprising, because this is how one becomes a saint. You find a saintly elder, or an elder who has had an elder who's been a saint. Um, and the whole chain right, of, el of, of, of wisdom is passed down through uh, virtuous men and, and, and holy men. Um, becomes a teacher, he becomes a monk. Uh, after he's ordained the deacon, he's sent to Athens, which is the capital of a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom of the Hellenes. Uh, um, and then from there, he was sponsored, there he was sponsored by the Patriarchate of Alexandria. So his tuition was paid by the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Uh, and uh, the, the, he had the promise, though, that he would go to Alexandria and become a, a clergyman there. So after he finished his theological studies in Athens, he traveled to Alexandria. I think he, this is in 1885. 1885, he went to Alexandria. Actually, Cairo was where the Patriarchate of Alexandria was based and still is based. Um, a few years before, Alexandria was technically, it was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but it had been occupied by the British. Um, even before uh, Egypt had been occupied by the British, of course, it had a very large Christian population um, who were not Orthodox or not 100% Orthodox, the Copts, who unfortunately reject, reject the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th ecumenical councils, um, and so are outside of the church, um, but there was also there were also communities of real Orthodox Christians, genuine Orthodox Christians, uh, in Egypt, most of whom were actually Greek merchants, uh, because before uh, Greeks migrated to America, they migrated to cities like Alexandria, Smyrna, and Constantinople, because those were major commercial centers in the Eastern Mediterranean. When the British took over, the British, of course, favored the Christians, both Copts and Greeks. Uh, and so many more Greeks flocked to Egypt. And so the, um, the Patriarchate of Constantinople, sorry, of Alexandria, its churches started to swell. So it started to build more churches. They needed more clergymen. They started to ordain more bishops. And so St. Nectarius went to Egypt, and he became uh, a priest and then a bishop. Uh, an assistant to the Patriarch of Alexandria, and he was responsible for uh, a district uh, around Cairo. Unfortunately, because St. Nectarios was very um, serious about his duties as a bishop uh, and was very serious about what, what he was offering and how he was pastoring his flock, people turned against him there, people who were jealous of him. And this is the way the devil works. One faction of people against him were monks from the monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai. That's shocking because you think, well, they're monks. What's going on? 
idolized. Well, this has been going on forever, right? These people are holy because they live in a holy mountain. Well, many people became holy at that holy mountain. Uh, and I'm sure there were holy men there who were not involved in uh, conspiring against St. Nectarius. But there was a faction of monks who were, uh, who had a disagreement with him about what their proper role was in Cairo. Um, they acted outside of the jurisdiction of the patriarch, and that's uncanonical, and St. Nectarius was against that. There were others within the patriarchate who also were against him because they were jealous of his virtues. And so they got him expelled. They eventually turned the patriarch against him, spread rumors about him, uh, and he was expelled from Egypt. And um, he went to Greece. And in Greece, he um, wasn't, get, wasn't given a very good job, or at least uh, uh, not, a, not a position in the church that um, was analogous to his spiritual stature. Uh, he became an itinerant preacher who had to walk from village to village and preached. Um, he became an Ierokirix, an itinerant preacher, in the island of Evia, which is a huge island. It's the second largest island in the Aegean after Crete. Um, and also on the mainland opposite Evia. Uh, and unfortunately, the rumors that got him expelled from Egypt and the slander, really it's slander, it's not just rumors, it's slander, followed him. And in many places, he was driven out of the villages. He wasn't allowed to preach. In other places, people were, who were goodwill, people of goodwill allowed him to preach. Right? And so he spent time uh, preaching in the villages, uh, walking from village to village, uh, eventually, though, he does get an important position as the dean of the Rizarios Theological School in Athens, which was one of the theological schools for clergymen, where people prepared to be clergymen. And a lot of these essays uh, were written, a lot of his writings were written then. Um, but eventually, he builds a monastery in, on the island of Egina, which is where he was buried, and that's the center of his, of his devote people devoted to him go there. Um, what had happened in Greece was when, for hundreds of years, when the Turks ruled Greece, the Turks allowed the monasteries to stay open. The Turks, in fact, were afraid of monasteries because they were very superstitious. And so in many cases, they just let the monastery, let the monks do whatever they wanted. And, and in, the, with, in the case of big monasteries, like the ones of Mount Athos, they just renewed all their privileges that the Byzantine emperors had granted to them. But when Southern Greece became independent, officially in the early 1830s, uh, and uh, the Kingdom of Greece was established with the German king and the German army and German advisors, um, things changed. What the Ottomans hadn't done, closed many monasteries and even demolished monasteries. Um, and in some cases, you're, you're, you're astounded to read what happened. Monasteries such as um, important Byzantine monuments in and around Athens were turned into storage facilities or government offices or schools, which is probably the most benign thing you could have done, the next, next best thing right, for a church building. Um, and there was a monastery of the Holy Trinity 
you know, I'm, I'm abandoned in that period. And so Synectarios came back and refounded it and turned it into and, and sent his spiritual daughters there. And they became a, a, a women's convent. And um, when he retired from his position at the Desarios school, uh, school, he went to Aegina and he died in Aegina in 1920. At this time in Greece, uh, there was a lot of, there was an identity crisis. There's still an identity crisis in Greece. Is Greece Eastern or is it Western? Is it Orthodox or is it secular? Uh, does Greece belong to Europe or does Greece belong to the Middle East? Or does Greece belong to itself? Should Greece be dependent on the British, on the French, or on the Russians? Is Athens, is Greece the continuation of ancient Greece and a rejection of Byzantium? Or is it a continuation of ancient Greece and Byzantium? These were all the questions that were in the air. Um, it makes for very interesting reading if you read through the um, history and the, and the writings of many of the, of the people that lived through this area. And that's exactly the era that St. Nectarios lived in. And St. Nectarios provides his own answers to many of those questions. He doesn't address those questions directly, uh, but, um, but they're all involved in what he says, at least in the texts that we're gonna, the text we're going to read today. Um, so that's why I said that at the beginning that this era is a very uh, critical era in the history of Greece. And the wrong turns made back then um, uh, all contributed to where Greece is today. At the same time, the right answers and the right turns that were made by uh, people like St. Nectarios and other saints, St. Nicodemus, who was before him, of course, anonymous saints, writers like Alexandros Papadiamandis, um, all those men provided correct answers to many of those questions and some hope for us today, for Greeks in Greece, for Greeks living abroad, for Orthodox Christians um, uh, more generally, uh, to turn back, because what happened back then is we, in general, we floated away from the center. We broke away from the center and floated out towards the margins, right, towards fragmentation and dissolution. Uh, there were some people alive back then that still defined what the center of our identity is, Just pointed back to it and said, we have to go back. Uh, and so the hope is, since they pointed that out, they defined it for us, we can find it again. We can go back to center and be grounded and, 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 and be Orthodox Christians uh, and be secure in our identity, which is, of course, not the most important thing. The most important thing is our salvation. But without that and without many other things that come from that, we can't even detain our salvation. So the text today, I'm going to switch off here. I'm not going to show the map anymore. Um, oh, it stopped share. Okay. So the text today um, is on the Feast of the Three Hierarchs. I think, um, well, first thing about something about the text, it, uh, and there's a very useful note, footnote, on the first page, telling us when this text was delivered. And this is important to context. I think someone had a question. Oh no, okay. Um, explains the context, because some things don't make sense if you don't understand this. Why is he talking about mothers, right? Why is he talking about Greeks? Well, um, the, this is a speech that St. Nectarios gave when he was in Alexandria. 
um, at a particular institution in Alexandria called the Argilopulio, Argilopulio uh, Girls School. It was a, a boarding school, basically on the British model, uh, for girls. Um, and it, uh, the, um, the name is actually based on, on, on the founder uh, who donated the money and the property to establish a girls' school. There's a discrepancy I just noticed on the guy's, on the name's spelling, but I think Senecarius mentions this family at the end of the, um, at the end of the sermon. Yeah. It's actually Agilopoulos. Agilopoulos. Um, uh, so there's a spelling error, but that's okay. Stuff like that happens all the time. Um, so he was invited. Actually, the patriarch of Alexandria was invited to give a speech, and he couldn't go. So he sent St. Nectarius. Um, and so um, this is a speech given to young women, uh, delivered before an assembly of young women and their teachers, perhaps some of their parents as well. These, these girls would have been uh, the daughters of many of the Greek um, merchants, that, that were doing business. So they were kind of well off. Uh, they, were, they were doing business in Africa, uh, in Egypt in particular, and Africa, and throughout the British Empire. The reason why Egypt is important is because around this time, um, I forget what year in particular, you can look it up, the Suez Canal was opened up, and so th that became an important uh, connection between uh, the Mediterranean, the British possessions in the Mediterranean, and, and um, India, which was, of course, the most important part of the British Empire at the time. Um, and so they did business in this whole territory. Um, and they're, they're girls that are part of the Greek diaspora, right? He's not preaching to girls in Greece or in Constantinople or in Smyrna. Those aren't diaspora cities. Those are traditional Greek cities. Zmirna was the largest Greek city in the world at the time, or the city with the largest Greek population. But these are Greeks living abroad, like, like many of us, uh, living in a society that, um, where there was a lot of diversity and diverse opinions. Uh, the majority of the, of the population there, of course, was Muslim in Cairo. Um, and, but of course, there were many other people there as well. There were Copts who were not Orthodox, but look Orthodox. Uh, and then there were, of course, the British, who most of whom were Anglicans. And at the time, the Anglicans were trying to get close to the Orthodox. Um, as it turned out, uh, they really weren't interesting, interested in becoming Orthodox. They liked the idea of having an ancient liturgy. Some, a lot of them did. Um, and uh, they wanted to be accepted as they were with all of their shortcomings. And um, the fathers of the era in the early 20th century turned them down. Nothing ever came of those ventures. But at the time, there was a lot of English interest in the early church, in the ancient church, and in the Eastern church. Another angle that the British were working is because is that the Anglican church, of course, was at odds with the Roman church, with the Roman Catholic church. And so... Um, Making common cause with the Orthodox would have, of course, won up the, the Pope. But that's a story for a different discussion. Uh, 
all these opinions. And when you're in your homeland and everyone has the same opinion, at least has the, is, is, has the basic understanding of what the faith is, all right, you're not challenged. It's, things are easier. Uh, but when you're abroad and you're surrounded by a variety of different opinions, the stakes are higher. Things are higher, are, are more difficult. And so the, 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 the pastoral, the pastoral uh, work that St. Nectarius is doing in these sermons is all connected, or at least in this sermon, and the ones that are from Alexandria, uh, is connected to uh, what um, the, the condition of his flock, right? adapting to the circumstances of the flock, getting and, and helping them actually survive there uh, spiritually in a completely different land. So it's on the Feast of the Three Hierarchs uh, of the year uh, 1889. I think the best way to go through this text after this rather long introduction um, is actually to read through it. And then we could stop and comment on, on different things that he's saying. Uh, because letting the saint speak for himself is very important. Having his words heard out loud are very important. So, and, and the, the book actually lends itself well to that because the author has numbered the paragraphs. Right? So we could go paragraph by paragraph. Uh, on the Feast of the Three Hierarchs, a joyful and radiant day dawns on us today, and we all aglow gladly pour forth that joy which is within us. All aglow. First comment. Um, he's not exaggerating. This is not a rhetorical flourish. Although maybe they are aglow also in terms of their feel, right? But what happens when we're in the liturgy? Uh, when we're in the liturgy, we're, it's like when we're standing in front of a fire. Right, you absorb the heat, and you walk away, and your face is hot. And in the liturgy, the same thing happens. Right? We don't perceive it with our eyes because because of, of the fallen state of our minds, uh, the darkened state of the mind. But if our mind is illumined and purified, we can see. We can see what not only the reality in front of us, and saints have seen the reality in front of them. Uh, but also uh, the realities that affect them directly, right? So we are a glow. Um, we just don't see it. It's the saints see it, though. Uh, our church celebrates the appearance of three stars in its noetic heaven, whose presence brilliantly lights the whole sky. Again, this is not a rhetorical flourish. This is specific. He's making a specific point here. The noetic heaven, many of you may not know what the word noetic means. It's not a very common word in English. Uh, but the word noetic comes from the, the Greek word nous, which means mind or intellect. And it's the highest part of the soul. Uh, it's the most, it's the noblest part of the soul, and the most important part of the soul, because that's the part of the soul where we understand, we understand without reason, so we intuit or perceive immediately truths and also when the heart when the when the sorry when the noose the intellect is purified that's where god reveals himself and many fathers call uh call the noose the intellect the eye of the soul later on saint nectarius is going to use a different terminology in the same essay 
Day. He's going to talk to us another way that Holy Fathers talk about the same reality, the most noble part, the most delicate part of the soul. Um, so the noetic heaven means everything that is perceived, the, an entire world exists beyond the visible. An entire environment, so to speak, spiritual environment, exists beyond what we actually see with our actual physical eyes. Um, and that environment is inhabited by, of course, uh, 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 other minds that are either in bodies, other human beings, or without bodies, bodiless beings, who are either good, the holy angels, or who are bad, the, divine, the, the demons, right? Um, that's an entire different environment that we, we exist in two environments, in both the physical, with the trees and the plants, and the air and the sky and the water, and in the spiritual or the noetic. So the noetic heaven is not a particular place in, in, a, in the physical sense, but it's, in a, it's, a, it's a place in the noetic sense. It's in the reality that's perceived by the purified mind. And the three hierarchies says are three stars. He's not speaking poetic, merely poetically here. The three stars, they are stars that reflect the divine, eternal, uncreated light of God. The light that always emanates from God. The light that shone from Christ's body on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration has poured into the saints and sanctified their bodies, which is why after they fell asleep, their bodies became relics. Um, but So we have these three stars in the noetic heaven whose, pres whose presence brilliantly lights the whole sky. Right? They, they reflect this noetic light, this super noetic light, this uncreated light. It celebrates the memory of its three most glorious hierarchs, the memory of Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, and John Chrysostom, who lit up the whole world with the light of divine dogmas. That's also an important thing. Uh, there's something important here to point out. The light of the divine dogmas. We could take that poetically. Sure, it means, you know, these, these dogmas are very profound. But at the same time, it means something specific, theologically speaking. The, the light of the divine dogmas, the dogmas themselves, the doctrines, the teachings of the church, are merely descriptions of the realities that the saints perceive. The realities that the saints perceive with their purified minds. And so it is light. It is uncreated light that, that, that the do doctrines are describing. Um, and this is why we have to be very careful with doctrines and why we have to keep the doctrines, the dogmas. Um, the word dogma comes from doxa, and so it's connected to the word orthodox, orthodoxia, right, which means correct doctrine. Some people say correct glory. It could mean glory too. It's another meaning for the word doxa. Um, but it means correct doctrine, correct teaching. That teaching, uh, just like the teaching in physics, right? When you take a physics class and your professor um, describes some kind of formula that, that, that tells you something about reality. It's based on the perception of reality. It describes reality, right? 
as it actually and in some cases you know there's there are levels of reality that we haven't penetrated yet i mean and i mean this scientifically right the scientists over the last 150 years really uh, understood uh, came to understand a lot uh, Uh, about, about contradicted by modern physics, right? It's just one level versus another level. The point is that both all types of physics describe reality. And so the doctrines here are metaphysical physics, so to speak, if, if that's possible, if that, if that phrase is possible. They describe realities that are beyond this world. The revelations of God, in particular, we're talking about the revelations of God. The saints did not discover these truths, like scientists did through experimentation, uh, but they, they, God specifically revealed, revealed these truths to them. The memory of these three brave warriors of Christ who struggled valiantly for the Orthodox faith, receiving from him the imperishable crown of victory. As a loving mother, the faith rejoices in the glory of its three most excellent children, whom it nourished with the pure milk of right belief and brought to rivers of wisdom and knowledge. And together with the mother, church, the whole body of Orthodox faithful exalts and rejoices because the memory of this holy triumvirate is much beloved and admired by it. And this is rightly so because these hierarchs not only kept safe that deposit entrusted to them, delivering it wholly to, pos to posterity, but they also bequeathed a rich treasure from out of their own trove that their successors might be further enriched, right? So the three hierarchs, of course, are important in the defense of the true doctrine, the true teaching. They defended, defended these doctrines. There are even some Christian, some supposedly Christian theologians who talk about the progress of theology, kind of in the same way that I just talked about the progress of physics. Um, but we know from St. Paul that everything is revealed all at once to the saints. Right? The entire truth was revealed to the Holy Apostles. Not part of it. And then 200 years later, another saint, St. Basil, let's say, discovered a little bit more of it. And then St. John Chrysostom a little more. And St. Mox, that, that is a heretical conception of the history of the church and the nature of doctrine. The entirety, because what is the entirety of the truth? Christ himself, our capacity to describe it and fully understand it is a completely different uh, uh, question. Um, also, the church's attempts to defend it and express it are also another question. Because, as you know, over time, there were various heresies that sprung up that were mis based on misinterpretations of Scripture that were based on um, delusion. And, and, and in many cases, these heretics attracted uh, large followings. Uh, and they were dragging people into, their, into destruction, spiritual destruction. That's the problem of, heret of heresy, is that it drags people over the cliff. Um, people who otherwise would know that they were falling off a cliff end up at the bottom of the cliff eventually. Um, and so the church stood up in particular, the, uh, these holy fathers, St. Basil, perhaps the most of the three, others as well, to defend the true teaching and 
to describe the true teaching in a way that would help people from and prevent them from falling into heresy. So St. Basil, St. Gregory the theologian, and then St. Basil's brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa, were very important. Those are the Cappadocian fathers because they're, they're all from Cappadocia originally. Um, those three fathers proposed vocabulary words, a consistent use of particular vocabulary words, as it relates to, as they relate to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, to help us describe the mystery, to help us talk about and defend the, the, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Because as you know, there were Arians at the time that said that there was a time when the Son didn't exist, when the Son of God didn't exist. That's what Arius said. Others were saying, well, the Son of God is different from the Father. It doesn't have the same essence. So St. Basil, St. Gregory, and other saints at the time defended the truth. Right? So they kept the truth. Um, they kept it safe. They kept the deposit safe. <clears throat> um, and they bequeathed it to posterity, to us, the holy tradition. Um, but they also bequeathed a rich treasure from their own trove, their own virtues, their, the example of their own virtues and, and their writings. Um, right? So they also gave us something that was theirs. Right? So the saints did add. They didn't add to the content. They added to the expression. They also added many examples and many wise words, right? Uh, admonitions, exhortations. This is why we should be reading the writings of the Holy Fathers, because they are full of the wisdom uh, of the church. Uh, and just like the Holy Spirit spake by the prophets, as we said, uh, as we say in the creed, they also the Holy Spirit also speaks, spoke and speaks through the Holy through the Holy Fathers. The body of Orthodox faithful rejoices because it has acquired patterns for a Christian perfection within humanity's chorus. It exalts because these hierarchs adorn the crown of the Church, triumphant like sparkling diamonds. While they fight on behalf of the Church militant. Uh, as eternal champions of orthodoxy, the church militant and the church triumphant. Those are two expressions describe the church right now, church militant and all the Christians that are alive today that are fighting, fighting for survival. They're, they're an army that's in battle right now. And, and they're uh, trying to, we're all trying to gain our salvation, keep the orthodox faith, and pass it down to our children. Three things, huge battles. So we're the church militant. Um, but the church triumphant is the church of the saints, the soldiers that have already won those, th those battles. And the, the saints, of course, the church militant and the church triumphant sound like it's two different churches, but it's not. It's one church, right? We're united. The good news is we're united with them. Uh, they are eternal champions of orthodoxy. So what they said applies in all, at all times, not just in the 360s or the 370s with the 390s when they lived. Every Orthodox heart loves, admires, and is grateful to these three holy men because for various reasons, like mechanical springs, they move the hearts of the Orthodox Christians to experience every feeling. Right? They motivate us to, to do our duty, our spiritual duty, and to re realize what our true dignity is. Then he says, but what pen is able to record their deeds? Okay, so this is something that you find very frequently in uh, ancient Greek rhetoric. 
right? The speaker turns after, in the second paragraph, a speaker will say, well, this topic is beyond me. So be patient with me because I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do a good job really trying to describe what actually happened. That's a stock rhetorical move. But with the Holy Fathers, they actually mean it. Because, indeed, how can you describe what St. Basil experienced? We can't. St. Basil even couldn't describe what he experienced completely. Uh, couldn't do justice, right, to the, to the realities that he was granted to see with his mind, with his purified mind. Um, and so this is, a, this is actually, in the case of Christian rhetoric, uh, this is true. There is no pen. It's a rhetorical question, but of course the answer is no. There is no pen that could describe this. And yet we still do it. We still have to. Um, we lack the time to recount their deeds. Uh, omitting, wherefore, omitting much, I will mention, but one thing concerning each to show the importance of the men and the cause of our infinite love, admiration, and gratitude toward them. Who in the church's history is greater than Basil the Great? in terms of his pastoral service and breadth of virtue, who has received the appellation, the great, bearing it as a descriptive title with which he has been inseparably united, right? It's descriptive. It's not merely praise. We don't call St. Saint Basil the great because we, we want to flatter him. He doesn't need to be flattered. Um, and he cannot be flattered. Um, we call him the great because it's true. He is the great. Uh, it's a description of, it's, it's a very bland description, in fact, compared to the realities that, that it, it stands for. It's a, it's a very weak description of, what's, of who St. Basil was and what kinds of gifts God gave him. Um, who has been shown a more capable theologian than Gregory the theologian? Who alone, after the high-flying eagle John the Evangelist, was acquired, has acquired for himself the lofty and divine title, the theologian. Right? What is a, theo a theologian? Theologos, someone who speaks about God. Who can really speak about God except people that have been united to God? The real theologians are the saints, right? The the people that get their degrees from universities and who study the Holy Fathers are not real theologians. They're not real theologi. Um, you know, it's good to study the Holy Fathers. And it's, if you can get a degree in theology, why not? But never consider yourself a theologian. The real theologian is someone who is united to God and can speak about God because he has an intimate relationship with God. And not intimate in the sense of just, you know, touchy-feely prayers, like Protestants, um, but a real metaphysical, ontological relationship where God has entered his heart and walks in with him, inside him, and acts through him, and they cooperate. Um, that is a theologian. And so St. Gregory is the second theologian. There are three theologians. Right? St. John the Evangelist is also the theologian. There's St. Gregory the theologian, and there's St. Simeon the New Theologian, who lived about 700 years later. And whose speech was sweeter than John's, whose mouth flows with gold, from whose tongue flowed speech sweeter than honey? Who else has received the celebrated title, 
chrysorimon in the church with the title golden mouth right again these are not doesn't need to flatter those saints the saints are above that right but these are descriptive obviously saint john chrysostom had a regular mouth he didn't have a golden mouth in the literal sense uh, but what is gold what's the property of gold it flashes it reflects light that's why that's why people like it because it reflects light it reflects the light of the sun back at you uh and so that's saint that's saint john's mouth reflecting the light of god right illumining the minds of those who heard him and those ever since who have been reading his writings truly this holy triumvirate containing within itself every virtue and every human perfection will be worthily honored and will ever reign in the hearts of orthodox christians the shrines of the muses the sacred temples of knowledge and education those ungrudging fonts of wisdom which irrigate the parched ground of our intellect and cause it to bear fruit celebrate together with the church because these three saints are considered the patrons of light bestowing learning and guardians of literature so the shrines of the muses so now saint nectarius is, is showing his uh well he's relying on his knowledge of classical literature in classical mythology in particular of course the muses are mythological creatures uh in ancient greek mythology and of course ancient greek mythology um it was the the, the, were the stories that pagans told about their gods but later on philosophers um considered some of those stories actually to be uh allegorical saint nectarius is not necessarily referring to an allegory here of the muses um but he is making an allusion to literature because he later on he's going to talk about the value of studying classical literature right so often we use literature um it, it, not just to spend our time well right i mean it is enjoyable to read an enjoyable book it's true and to read um nice poetry and and rhetoric and and sentences that are formed well um that's all very good uh but there are better things to do with your time as well and if you can combine that with uh mining the ancient literature for useful information useful information this is what most of the holy fathers why they studied ancient greek literature and philosophy in particular the writings of plato and aristotle but another way we use literature is we use literature as as kind of an extension of our vocabulary so a language right has nouns verbs adjectives adverbs prepositions so on and so forth uh, and, and then but beyond that communication doesn't stop there when we communicate we have to use similes and we use analogies and we use metaphors right and those similes those analogies and those metaphors we get from a shared stock of stories that we've all heard right that we all know and that facilitates communication an analogy is when you try to understand something that's less familiar by referring to something that's more familiar right um right and then a metaphor is just an extended analogy so here we have an an illusion right using a phrase from the literature of the ancient greeks uh saint nectarios uh saint nectarios 
um, uses the words the shrines of the muses as a poetic way, here's, here there is real poetry, um, to refer to the schools, right? Because who are the muses in ancient Greek literature? They were um, nymphs that, um, that, that inspired. Our word inspiration, right, comes from this. They breathed they, into the person that uh, was going to sing a poem, right? So uh, the, the, the Iliad, for example, starts with an invocation of the muse, and a lot of epic poetry starts in classical, in ancient Greek literature, starts with the invocation of the muse, right? Sing to me, O muse, right? Andra mienepe musa polytropon, the Odyssey, right? The, the sing to me, O muse, about a very cunning man, right? Odysseus. Um, inspire me with words. That's what the ancients talked about. Um, so the muses were all, always connected with words in literature and poetry. And so St. Nectarius here is just referring to this, he's paraphrasing the word school. So the shrines of the muses are the schools, the sacred temples of knowledge and education. They celebrate together with the church, and this is a theme that he's going to um, uh, uh, emphasize over and over again. Education and the church, they are united. Education and the church. This is connected to what many saints in the 18th century were saying. Uh, in particular, about a um, hundred years before uh, St. Nectarios was writing this, there's St. Cosmas the Aetolian, uh, who was an Athenite who uh, left Mount Athos with permission from the patriarch Constantinople, had a license to preach, and he preached all over what is today Western Greece and many of the Greek islands and even parts of uh, southern Albania or northern Epidios. Uh Because in these areas, there was well, many people were, were falling into uh, temptations to become Muslims. So St. Cosmas was grieved by that, and he went and he preached to all, in all these villages. And the one thing that turned the tide here on the Islamization, you know, uh, it, it staved off the threat of Islamization was the establishment of schools. And according to the oral tradition of many of these villages, so he made such a profound impact on these people that from generation to generation, many of these villagers passed down stories about what he said. Right? He was eventually martyred, so he became a saint. And that, of course, uh, solidified his, the, 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 um, what he said in the minds of people. And uh, what he said to these people was establish schools. Don't worry so much about building churches because the schools will build churches. The schools will keep your children Christian. And he was talking about classical curriculum, the same curriculum um, St. Nectarius was talking about in these pages. The classical curriculum, of course, not just the classical curriculum in the way that it's taught by secular professors, but the way that it was taught in Byzantium, the way it was taught by Orthodox Christian scholars and Holy Fathers, like the three holy hierarchs, that curriculum, united to the church, will save your children and also provide churchmen and leaders for the church and for the nation. Um, so the unity between education and the church um, 
And these three saints are the patrons of this light-bestowing learning. And again, St. Nectarios is not being rhetorical here, merely rhetorical. Um, because the, what he's going to, what he's going to uh, propose is a form of education that in fact is light-bestowing. The point is not merely the sharpening of the, of the, of the mind's tools, right? It's reasoning capacity and it's ability and the ability of a person to speak, but also the purification of their mind, the purification of their mind, a from error and B most importantly from sins and passions. And thus that type of learning is really like bestowing. Why I wonder are the many distinguished men connected with education found in the state and in the church, these three men chose as patrons and guardians of education. What is the aim of the present feast? Behold, this is the theme of our sermon. Our pious and wise fathers revered these three holy men. First, because in them, the state and church are brought together. That's, it's a little funny. And if you don't understand the history of the feast day, you don't understand what he's saying there. The feast day was actually... The three hierarchs, of course, the three separate saints had their own feast days. Um, and St. John uh, Chrysostom has two feast days, right? one in November, one in January. Um, the, uh, the other two uh, saints have their own feast days in January. Um, and for a thousand years, the church had left it at that. It was fine. But of course, there were controversies in Constantinople, like there always were. Um, but this was a good controversy, right? There was a, it was a debate about which of the three uh, saints was a better theologian. Of course, it's a ridiculous debate, but I guess if you're going to have a debate about uh, something, I, I don't know, I, I think I would prefer being part of that debate than some of the debates that are occurring, that are occurring today. Um, the state got involved. The emperor, Alexios I Komnenos, who was uh, emperor at the, in the, at the end of the 1000s and the beginning of the 1100s. Um, and he implemented the feast of the three saints together. So it's the state. It's the state taking the lead on establishing the, em the pious emperor. And of course, by, by, when I say pious emperor, I do mean pious in, in the good sense of pious and in the real sense of pious because uh, Alexios really took care of the church and drove heretics out and had them uh, sorry, prosecuted, in one case persecuted, um, had them prosecuted and expelled from their positions and exiled. Um, and that might today um, sting our sensibilities, but in reality, this is how you fight evil. Uh, and so Alexios Komnenos was a pious Christian Roman emperor um, whose piety is on display in this feast because he was, it was on his initiative. Um, and, um, right, because in Byzantium, the Roman Empire, the Christian Roman Empire, we have the symphony of the church and the state. Uh, the church doesn't rule the state. The state doesn't rule the church like it did in when uh, in the 1800s in Greece, in 1834, the Church of Greece be, got broken away forcibly from the Patriarchate of Constantinople and was made a department of the Kingdom of Greece, like 
subject to a government minister. And for a while, it was, it, was in, it was even in schism until 1850, state ruling over the church, like in the Protestant countries in Northern Europe. Uh, on the other hand, you have the other counterexample of the Roman Catholic Church, in particular the papacy, which is its own state and refuses, it refuses to become part of Italy today. When Italy united in the 1860s, the last holdout against the unified Italy was the papacy because they didn't want to be under a secular state at all. They wanted to, the Pope wanted to be his own king. Uh, and of course, this has nothing to do with Christianity or orthodoxy. The, the Roman Catholics have an entire theory that they use to, 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 to defend that, um, but it's not orthodox. Um, but in Byzantium, you have this symphony, this symphonia, uh, that was uh, articulated by emperors like Justinian and uh, later on by St. Photios, um, St. Photios the Great, another great theologian. So because we have in them the state and the church, they're brought together. These saints were members uh, of our ethnic polity and friends of Greece. There were many distinguished men in the church who were not friends of Greece. And every virtue was brought together in them. Second, they discerned from out of the depths of history that the future grandeur of the Greek people depended upon the state being tied to the church, for church and state are a mutual support and ought to walk together. That's another restating of the theory of symphonia. So we don't believe. In an orthodox society, there should not be a separation of church and state. In an Orthodox society, there should be a symphony of church and state. But let me say something about Greeks. Why is he talking about Greeks? Is he a nationalist? Is St. Nectarios an ethnophilitist? Ethnophilitism had actually recently been condemned in 1872. Um, there, there was a schism in um, the um, Eastern Balkans and Central Balkans uh, between the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Bulgarian Exarchate. Uh, the Bulgarian Exarchate uh, were the Bulgarian bishops who insisted that they should have parallel bishops in cities where there were already other Orthodox bishops, namely Greek bishops. Um, and, and that the Bulgarian bishops should be for the Bulgarians in the cities. They even had a bishop in Constantinople, which illustrates the, um, the hubris, really, of, of their position. Um, and uh, the Greek bishops would just be for the Greeks. And in 1872, there was a Pan-Orthodox Council two years later that convened in Constantinople that condemned that position as a heresy. That's ethnophilitism. That's putting your ethnos and making it your nation and making it an idol and subordinating the canon law and the teachings of the church under your nation. But it does not mean that your nations and ethnicity and even nationalism, understood properly, are bad things. Remember, so why does St. Nectarius talk about Greeks? Well, first of all, he's talking to Greeks, right? So the church speaks to the people that are, that are, that are in the church, right, that are right there. Um, the flock of the Patriarchate of Alexandria, as we said, was made up of people that had emigrated to Egypt, to Alexandria and Cairo, in Port Said, in many of the towns in the Nile, uh, major uh, economic center at the time. Um, they, they had migrated there. They were Greeks. They were living abroad. The Patriarchate of Constantinople was tending, uh, sorry, of Alexandria, was pastoring those people. 
Uh, and St. Nectarios, uh, his, this sermon, uh, this speech, reflects that reality. Uh, it reflects the fact that he is talking to Greek people and he's trying to get Greek people to understand how, in fact, their identity fits inside orthodoxy. Um, and, and also, later on in the book, we'll see that he sees that nations actually have particular vocations. Each nation has a different vocation. And uh, later on in the book, he's going to talk about how Greek-speaking Christians in particular have a specific vocation to teach historically, historically, right? Because the New Testament was written, in, uh, he has an entire argument, but I'm just going to recap a few points. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Holy Fathers wrote in Greek. And thus they taught people around the world. Um, and um, the West became Christian through Greek-speaking missionaries, the Holy Apostles, and the first three centuries of the Church of Rome, all preached in Greek. And then uh, Eastern Europe was missionized by uh, Greek missionaries later on, hundreds of years later, with St. Cyril and Methodius. Right? So um, this is what he's talking about. Um, he talks about our, they were members of our ethnic polity. Um, the other thing that we have to understand that is that the ideas about ethnicity and their relationship to the faith, of course, change over time. Ethnicities, of course, have always existed. Uh, and the Greek ethnic group, right, has been in existence for a long time. Um, uh, you know, since uh, antiquity. Uh, Greek speakers have formed uh, a specific ethno-cultural, ethno-religious, ethno-linguistic group, and there's a continuity from antiquity to Byzantium to modern Greece. Um, but how the boundaries of that ethnic group are understood changes over time, right? Uh, initially, there were just specific tribes that were part of this. Later on, it was identified with a particular culture not necessarily with ethnic background in the way we understand it today, right? Later on, it's territorial. Finally, today we have a genealogical understanding of, of ethnicity. Um, and so St. Nectarios' understanding of, of ethnicity is actually quite open-ended because in, in a subsequent chapter, he's also going to talk about how um, the, the Greeks make other people Greek. Right, not in the sense of suppressing their ethnicity, although that's probably happened um, in, in in a forcible way. That those that's but that's not the rule; it's an exception. Um, but by giving them classical learning, the ancient Greek language belongs to all Orthodox Christians. It doesn't just belong to the ancient to the modern Greeks. Although the modern Greeks, I'll tell you, should take it more seriously than they than they do. Because if they did, they would understand themselves a lot better. And more importantly, they would understand the gospel much better and the divine liturgy much better. Uh, but the, Greek the ancient Greek language belongs to all Orthodox Christians. And the literature of the Holy Fathers belongs to all Orthodox Christians. And the literature of the ancient Greeks belongs to all civilized men. So this is what St. Nectarios means when, later on when he's going to say, everyone can become a Greek. Um, uh, a third point I want to make about this 
statement, they were members of our ethnic polity and friends of Greece. Well, someone might say, well, St. Basil, he's from Cappadocia, as was St. Gregory, and St. John Chrysostom is from Syria. How are they members of the Greek polity, ethnic polity? Well, if you asked St. If, if, if it was possible to go back to the third century, or the, actually the fourth century, and the fifth century, and talk to St. Basil, or St. John Chrysostom, or in some places you could actually find it in their writings, and you ask them, what are you? After saying they're Christians, of course, and you ask them, no, no, what ethnicity are you? They would say, we're Romans. We're Romans. Right? Does that mean they were Italians? No, they weren't Italians. But by that time, the Roman Empire had been around for such a long time, uh, had been ruling those parts of the world for such a long time. And also, there were Christian emperors, right? So saying you're a Christian and a Roman was compatible. Um, it had been compatible for a while. But the Roman Empire had been around for such a long time that the people that lived in the Roman Empire identified with it. Also, the Greek language had been spoken in those parts of the world, in Asia Minor and in Syria, in particular in Antioch. And actually, St. John Chrysostom's father was a Roman uh, officer. Um, the Greek, but the Greek language had been spoken in these territories for such a long time since the days of Alexander the Great, which by this time, by the year 400, so Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., and St. John Chrysostom was active in the 390s AD, right? So we're talking something like 600 years, 600, 700 years. Um, the Greek language had been the language of education and urban life and, and uh, the economy uh, and government, uh, Roman governors. To become a Roman governor, you have to know Greek, especially if you're going to be sent to the east and be a governor of a, of a province in the east. The, the, the two had merged, the Greek language and Roman identity had merged. In fact, St. Nectarios, growing up in Silimvria, and many, of our and many of the ancestors of the Greeks that are here with us today, living in their islands when St. Nectarios was, was alive in the 1840s, 1850s, still called themselves Romans, Romani, right? What happened in the 1800s with the Greeks is a change in name, but not of content. Right, from being called Romans for many, many centuries, the modern Greek state said, well, now we're going to stop calling ourselves Romans, East Romans, right? By which, in the modern era, we, we, we call those people Byzantines. Um, and we're going to call ourselves Hellenes. And so St. Nectarios, being a man educated in his era, of course, changed. Not changed. Uh, I mean, he, he, he went along with that new terminology. Um, but who are the Hellenes? Who are the Hellenes today? Well, they're the Romans of back then, right? So in that sense, yes, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, and St. Gregory were in fact of the same ethnic polity as St. Nectarios and as those girls that were in the boarding school that he was uh, talking to. Um, Third, they desired the transmission of these lofty truths to posterity by means of the appointed service so that their true mindset might be proclaimed across the ages. And the passage of time and coming changes would not alter the face of, their, of that unchanging, indescribable program to which every Greek ought to hold, 
ought, ought to hold unswervingly, recognizing and showing reverence for these truths, and thus celebrate this festival, well, whereby thereby showing indeed that we embrace what we embrace by word. So we're at 10 o'clock, or, or 10 to 10. Maria, what's the schedule? Um, should, we, should we stop here and continue next time? Um, I don't know, up to everybody who's in tonight. Um, 10 o'clock here in the Eastern, Eastern time. Over there, it's 9 o'clock, right? Or it's, it's, it's 9.50 here. You know, over there, it's 8.50. Um, um, so on the bottom of your screen, you should see a reactions button. If you have maybe 40 more minutes to go and you're okay with that, um, let, me, let me say something. It was actually a rhetorical question that I asked because I was going to suggest that we break here. <laughs> okay, uh, um, if that's the case, then can we jump to questions real quick? Yeah, let's do some questions. I should, I should ask rhetorical questions. I should just be direct. Yeah, I don't do good with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's, do, let's go ahead and do questions. Kat has a, is that a question? No, no. I'm sorry. I don't know how to turn it off. Okay. <laughs> Here it is. But that just goes to show I was so, I was in it. I was in it. Good. For the long haul. <laughs> well, no questions. This is what happens when I talk and talk for an hour and a half. Everyone for kind of forgets that they have, if they have questions or not. Um, just if you're new to Zoom, maybe you haven't used this feature before, but on the bottom, there's also a chat button. So anytime you do have a question, you could just write it in there and then we can go over it. We can go over it at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Whenever there's a question that comes up, you could also always enter it into chat. And uh, when I notice it, I'll pause and read it and answer the question. Yes. Well, I have a comment, not so much of a question, but I would like to say I really appreciate how you gave us some background information. Um, it really helped a lot to kind of understand more um, about St. Nectarios in general and then just the region itself, because it does tie in really well with the with the chapter. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's important because, you know, uh, we have to understand the context of the text uh, of what we're reading, and so um, context is half the battle when it comes to interpreting, right? And and trying to apply. Although you know the historical background, you don't have to have all the historical background to take the spiritual lessons. Uh, sometimes uh, the historical background actually highlights the spiritual lessons. Um, in the case of St. Ignatius, he was living in a turbulent era. Uh, and so we live in the turbulent era. And knowing a little bit about that time might help us understand how we could apply what he teaches in our own lives, in our own turbulent era. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's you know, reading this book and, and hearing the life. Maria? <laughs> no, it's Ilya. <laughs> You're, you're, in the life of St. Nectarios, you know, you get to see um, 
you know, everything he writes about, everything he talks about, even though it's a hundred years ago to the, to the year now, um, or, or after his death, really, uh, it's still very much applicable today. He saw a lot of the tribulations that are very similar to what we're experiencing today. Um, the persecutions, the genocides that were occurring in the Christians of Asia Minor during that, that decade. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting to see what he says and how we can apply that in our lives today. I think that's common amongst many of the writings of the church fathers, the saints, anyone you pick up to read, even from, you know, reading the homilies by St. John Chrysostom, who was in the early, like, 300s, right? Late 300s? In the 300s? Late 300s, early 400s, yeah. Yeah. Um, anything that he even writes in his writings seems very relatable to us today. Yeah. There's a question here about the Romans. Um, so uh, the fathers were called Romans, but they were actually Greeks, in my understanding. Yes. Well, so there were, there were fathers who were ethnically Greek, and there were fathers who were culturally Greek. Of course, there were also fathers who were neither culturally Greek or ethnically Greek, like St. Ephraim the Syrian, right, or St. Isaac the Syrian. Um, uh, but they were all Romans. They were Roman citizens because they lived in the era of the Roman Empire. They all lived after the fathers we're talking about right now lived uh, uh, after St. Constantine. So the emperors, aside from Julian, all the emperors were Christians. Um, and, and so the, their, their identity in the way that we would say, well, I'm Greek-American or American or Greek, if you're from Greece, what they would say if they were asked, is they're Romans. It, was, it, was, it had gone actually beyond being just their political identity, their citizenship. And Greeks today are their descendants. Obviously, the fathers we're talking about didn't have any descendants because they weren't married, but their relatives did, and people uh, from their villages and their towns and their regions did. And the Greeks today are, modern Greeks today, are descendants of those Romans, of those Greek-speaking Romans. Yes, the, exactly. New Rome, Constantinople, or East Rome, the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, and when the Turks conquered later, in 1453, when they conquered the Byzantine Empire, of course, it was the Roman Empire, really. That's what it really was called. Um, they called all Orthodox Christians Rome, Romans, right? Because externally, they, this is the religion of the Romans, Orthodoxy. Of course, within the Orthodox Church, there are other ethnicities as well, but the Greek-speaking uh, uh, Christians were uh, called Romans and called themselves Romans all the way to this day. Greeks still will, in private, say that we are Romian, we are Romans. Um, so, and that's connected to this whole identity crisis. Um, one of the questions that the Greeks were trying to answer in the eight, when, when they first won their independence was, what are we? Are we Hellenes or are we Romans? We speak the language of the Hellenes, of the, or uh, a language derived from the ancient Greek, which is the language of the Hellenes. But our ancestors all fought in the Roman army. They were Roman emperors. We call ourselves Romans. And then the Westerners call us Greeks. What are we? There's three names just floating around. What are we going to do? Um, and the Greek government decided that they would 
Greek-speaking Christians should call themselves Hellenes. The Westerners called everyone Greeks, whatever. They, they, didn't, they didn't distinguish, right? Um, this story is confusing because of uh, our perspective today, uh, the way that we define ethnicity today, the way that we understand the history of ethnic groups today. Uh, we, we oversimplify the story, in other words, whereas reality is much more complicated. Um, but yes, um, St. John Chrysostom are Romans, just like we're Romans. Very complicated. Uh, am I understanding that Rome was rebuilt because old, New Rome was built because Old Rome was becoming to something? Usually people, are say, people say it's decadent. Old Rome is becoming decadent. Well, um, Old Rome was becoming just as Christian as New Rome. St. Constantine moved the, the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, which he actually named New Rome. Later, it was named after him um, for practical reasons, but he was also guided there. He was guided by God, actually, to, to move the capital to Constantinople. Uh, and actually, an angel showed him to, how to mark out the city limits and where the city limits were supposed to go to. Right? That's, that's the, what tradition says. Um, and so it was part of God's plan for the world, not just for the people in the Mediterranean, not just for the Greeks or the Romans, but for the entire world. Because it's from there then that orthodoxy then uh, uh, moved in various directions, in Eastern Europe and Russia, so on and so forth. Um, and Constantinople became the center of the civilized world for centuries. Other questions? Well, could I just also add um, with, with that thought that you were just saying um, that Rome was also still very pagan and there was a lot of pagan temples and whatnot. And so St. Constantine really just wanted to start fresh where, you know, he just wanted a Christian empire, um, a foundation where it could be all Christian and not have um, the pagans involved. Yeah, well, yes and no. It's complicated and we should probably... After this, maybe we should talk about St. Constantine. Um, you know, St. Constantine had uh, many uh, advisors who were pagans uh, and still had uh, generals and friends. And so uh, what St. Constantine established uh, through the Edict of Milan, along with his fellow emperors, was the toleration. Uh, whereas Christians were persecuted after the Edict of Milan, and there were a number of toleration edicts that happened kind of simultaneous, that was, uh, simultaneously or around the same time. Um, they, there was a, a toleration that was granted to the Christians that they could live normally in the Roman Empire and be Christians at the same time. Um, so St. Constantine actually provided for the pagans as well. And when he rebuilt Constantinople, there were pagan... Uh, monuments that he actually uh, built in the city because it was supposed to be a carbon copy of Rome. Um, but at the same time, when you, if you read his life, as it's written by Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, uh, Eusebius um, 
preserves many texts, letters that St. Constantine wrote to the pagans in various instances where he preached to them the truth and, and pointed out the false things they were believing in and, and the superiority of Christianity. So that's actually the ideal kind of uh, approach, right? Let them be free. Let them do what they want, live their lives the way they want, but at the same time, uh, provide for them in other ways. Teach them, right? Tell them the truth. Don't hide the truth from them. And this is something that we, perhaps, something that might challenge the way we live our lives. Because often, too often, at least I find myself hiding the truth not getting involved, not telling my coworkers what the truth is, right, about a particular question, or kind of saying it halfway in a slightly rationalistic way to kind of, um, but most of the time I just mind my own business, right? And so, but that's not good. Um, we have to have the courage to speak the truth. And today there are a number of issues that we need to speak the truth on. Uh, everything from, you know, um, the reality of reality, <laughs> the truth of reality, uh, that's a tautology, but today it's got to be stated. It's obvious. Right? The truth of reality, the, 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 the singleness of the truth, the truth of biology, right? All these things are, are very important that we have to witness to, because if we don't, who will? Um, we are the extensions, so to speak, as Christians. We are part of the body of Christ. And we think about this only when we go to communion. And we should think about it when we go to communion. That we become part of the body of Christ. Right? Receive, uh, partake of the body of Christ. Right? Taste of the immortal font. Or the font of immortality, depending on the translation. We think about it, that, and then when we leave, we forget it. But there are, there are responsibilities that, that, that come along with being part of the body of Christ. Among those responsibilities, of course, is to live in the way the body of Christ lives. That's the in, inward responsibility. But the outward responsibility is to be an extension of the incarnation in the world. Now, that's a really tall order, to be an extension of the incarnation of God in the world. Not everyone can do that in the way that we imagine, in the way that all the saints did it. That's what they were. And, and what was the incarnation of God? It was the complete revelation of the truth. But we can do it in a small way. We're completely unworthy of it. There's no way we could ever be worthy of it, of, of such a high dignity. That was just given to us as a gift. But since we have the gift, somehow we have to put it into action. And we have to tell, we have to speak the truth to people, and we have to do it even when it hurts us. Even, even when it, it's something that's going to um, turn people against us. Now, if you're going to go and speak the truth to people because you want to uh, you know, be better than them, then don't do it. Right? If I want to. If I want to challenge my friends and debate them for the sake of debate or for the sake of my pride and my vanity, then I shouldn't do it. That just gets everyone more upset. And I fall into the stereotype that everyone has of the fanatic. 
right? Um, we also shouldn't do it just because we're attached to the particular, to the idea of the doctrine, or the idea of the truth. Um, we, we should preach the truth out of charity, which is selfless love, right? Um, selfless love, because we love our neighbor, we speak the truth. Because to hide the truth is not charity, it's uncharitable. Um, right? And we'll be judged. Right? Those, like, like the servant who buried the talent, right? We'll be, we'll be judged. So we have to speak the truth. And, and we're always worried about where the world is going. But we shouldn't be surprised about where the world is going if we don't speak the truth. If we don't, if we don't help our neighbor, love thy neighbor as, thy, as yourself. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Be consistent. Um, if we don't do that, then there's nothing that's going to change where the, the way the world is going. Once we start doing that, of course, we have to transform ourselves inwardly through repentance. And we bring it in simple ways. If we don't have the ability to preach, if we don't have the ability to interpret, if we don't have the ability uh, or the blessing, you know, to interpret the scriptures, uh, then we have to help in the way we can, in whatever way we can. I throw our example first and foremost. Um, so we have... Uh, Many responsibilities as Christians, but, but that one, speaking the truth, like St. Constantine. St. Constantine did not use violence against his fellow Romans. I mean, he did fight some wars, civil wars, yes. There are political reasons uh, that that happened. Uh, and, and all those wars are unfortunate. Every war that's ever fought is unfortunate. Uh, but it's also part of the, the, the plan of God for St. Constantine and for the rest of us. Um, but as far as religion is concerned, the neo-pagans slander St. Constantine that he persecuted the pagans. He didn't. He did not persecute the pagans. He, allowed, he gave everyone equality and made them free. But he preached the truth to them because as a God-fearing emperor, he loved his subjects. He loved his subjects, whether they loved them or not. And he felt a responsibility for them. So it's out of charity. Emperors, Christian emperors, henceforth ruled out of charity. Some had ambition, but the ideal was always charity. Okay, any other questions? Maria, I don't think there are any questions. Um, thank you, Donia, for um, hosting tonight, and I know we all would look forward to um, all the future sessions. Um, just as a reminder, this is going to be pretty consistent um, every Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, and then um, except during the fast for the Holy Door Mission of our Theotokos, um, and then we'll resume again after that, but I'll put out a reminder as we get closer to that. So. Um, I don't know, Nizap, do you have any last-minute things you want to say? I think uh, one idea is uh, we're just going to continue here through this reading of uh, the first text. And uh, maybe if people, if you want to have, if you have questions, you could write them during the week and then uh, bring them up next week as we uh, move through the various paragraphs. 
All right, everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the night and a blessed weekend. Okay. Thank you. Have a good night. Kalinikta.